welcome to the Fulfillment Project. I'm your host, Sarah Fennell, international fitness model and former IFBB Pro figure athlete, turned personal development sponge, entrepreneur, and online marketing junkie. I want to have it all in life, and I am not afraid to admit it. This show is for high-performing, high-vibing humans who are ready to take action, step through their fears, and up-level their life and business. Join me as we take one more step closer to that today. Good day, good day, good day. Welcome to The Fulfillment Project. As always, I am your host, Sarah. If you have been a longtime listener for the last three months since we've launched this podcast, I just want to say thank you so, so, so much. I have so much gratitude for those of you who have been following along this journey with the amazing guests and content and information. If you are new to the show, I would love for you to hit the subscribe button on whatever platform it is that you're listening from. The downloads keep going up. The subscriber rate is going up from week to week. And I am really, really loving this community of listeners growing. And I would love for you to be part of that so that you are notified every time I have episodes that come out. Mondays are solo episodes with me. And days like today, Thursday, we have guest interviews. My guest today, I'm not sure if he needs any introduction, is Chris Harder. If you don't know who Chris is, him and his wife, Lori Harder, are such amazing human beings. Honestly, that's really all that I can say. Everyone who I've talked to, who knows them, who has interviewed them, who's been in contact with them, always talks about their massive, massive generosity for just lifting others up. Chris has an amazing story, and you know we're going to talk about money today. He actually has a top-rated podcast called For the Love of Money. Um, hint, hint, go over there and check that out after this episode, though. And, you know, he went from having it all and a big ego and making a lot of money, but really on a surface level, not focusing on what really mattered in life, ended up losing absolutely everything, having to rebuild his entire life. And now, you know, him and Lori have multiple seven-figure businesses. So let's talk about the your relationship with money, reframing your mindset around money and what it really, really takes to be successful, be fulfilled, and make a really great income doing what you love. So I'm so excited for you to listen in on this conversation that I had with Chris. Chris, my friend, welcome to The Fulfillment Project. Honestly, thank you for being here today. Of course. My pleasure to be on. I'm really excited to jump into this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have definitely been following you and Lori over the past few years, and you two are on such a massive growth phase. And, you know, even for yourself, like as someone who stands in the background and watches, but I know it wasn't always like that for you. You know what's funny? You just mentioned we've been on this massive growth phase. <sighs> growth is like, you know, growing pains when you're a kid and like you're growing too fast and it hurts. That's kind of what it feels like. Everybody, you know, they start saying, oh, you guys are on a rocket ship and I'm watching you grow and, and I'm watching all these things happen. And they, they say it and they frame it like it must be this amazing feeling. But what they forget to see are the actual growth pains. And so that's what Lori and I, it's like this beautiful balance. It's this beautiful dance that we've been doing the past few years between balancing our ambitions and all the other things that come with making those happen would happen, um, balancing our relationship, balancing our families, balancing our friends and finding a way to fit it all in. So I'm really excited to kind of get into the details of that a little bit as you and I start to go back and forth, 
because I, I'm sure your listeners, they all have really big dreams. Otherwise, they wouldn't be listening to a, a show like this. And I want to try and connect the dots for them through our story in order to, you know, allow them to find themselves in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people see the highlights or the quote unquote outcome of the growth, but they don't understand that a whole messy journey that sometimes goes along with it. It's so true. You know, people always you see all these memes out there about, about overnight success that took this many years or whatever. Everyone's got their clever take on it. Right. But it's so true. If you think about it, people don't know you until they see you. And in order for them to see you, that means you had to do a whole bunch of work to be seen. And so they, they don't even get the chance to see all of that great work where you're rolling up your sleeves in order to be seen. And they wonder, wow, why did it happen so fast for that person? So I know we're going to get into some awesome behind the scenes details on like our ups, our downs, our struggles, our hacks, all that stuff as we go here. Yeah, yeah. So let's dive into that. Um, I know you have a really unique story that started as a highlight and then went low. And let's take our listeners through all of kind of the beginning stages of Chris Harder and and where this all began for you. Yeah, for sure. So I am a college dropout. When I say college dropout, I actually mean I got kicked out after two and a half years for just partying way too much. And when I got kicked out, this is the funniest thing. My parents were devastated. You know, I was Midwest born and raised. And it was that typical middle class upbringing where like, you know, get a get good grades, go to school, get in the best school you can, and and then graduate with a degree and go get a good job and work your way up. Like the typical path that they thought was the right way to go. And so here I am at the school, two and a half years. I'm literally one semester, I didn't even buy books. Like we are talking pure party, zero effort, right? And I, the school finally says, you're not invited back. Like we've had enough of you, you're out. And my parents were devastated. It, like it's gonna be the end of my world as they knew it. And I was happy. I was excited because the entire time I just wanted to be out there rolling up my sleeves, doing the do, participating in the economy, so to speak, and making money. And I don't I didn't have any rhyme or reason to it. I didn't have any plan. I just knew that was my calling. So I'm excited. My parents are devastated. I go and I get a job at a car dealership because, you know, what else can you do when you get when you get kicked out of college? Um, And I loved cars. So it made sense to me. And I started to work my way up really quickly in the sales department there. I learned sales. I loved sales. It fit my personality. And after a few short months, out of almost 30 salespeople there, I was the top person. You know, so here's this young kid and all the adults have been working there for years. You know, they hate me because I just walked in and, and jumped to the top. And I did so well, they actually moved me into their finance department. And that's where not only did I learn a little bit more sales, because that's really just another form of sales. But then they gave me the department to manage when somebody left. And that's where I learned my first bits of leadership. So here I am, fresh out of, you know, being booted out of college. I've learned sales. I've learned leadership. And I feel like if you can learn those two things, you can write your ticket anywhere. Now, at the time, about two years into this, every, all my friends were starting to get into the banking boom and the mortgage boom because everybody's making so much money during it. And of course, I wanted to make more money too. So I talked my way into this job at this huge international bank that I was not qualified for from a degree standpoint. And literally when I went in there, the person who was hiring, his name was Todd, he's like, listen, you got this interview on the books. I've already got my people picked out, but who knows about the future? Let's just have a good conversation. And I talked my way into getting that position that he thought he had already filled with somebody else. And then I worked my way up there really quickly. I flew up through the ranks. I became one of the fastest rising executives at the world's biggest international bank at the time during this boom. And every single year I'd get a huge promotion and every single year I'd get a huge raise. And every single year I'd pick up Lori and I'd say, hey, babe, we're moving to another city. Go pick out a house, pick out some friends. I've got to go get on an airplane. 
And I remember this was what was crazy. I thought I was being a good provider. Like I thought I was doing it right. And my idea of being a good provider was so silly as I look back on it, because being a provider is not just allowing somebody to go have a, a nice house to live in, right? Being a good provider is being there for them, spending time with them, um, helping them also chase down their dreams. Like there's so many layers to being a good provider. So I had it all wrong, but I was in my, my early to mid twenties. So you'll have to excuse me. I didn't know any better. And all of that was fun and positive and exciting until the recession hit. Now here's where it got really ugly. Um, I was, we were living way beyond our means. And when I say we, I mean, I, because I was doing all the finances for the house. And Lori, she never had a chance to wake up and say, what do I want to do? Like, what do I want to become? Because I would move her every single year. And by the time she barely got some roots, I'd move her again. So here we were living beyond our means because we're a couple of silly 20 somethings that thought it would last forever. I used to joke, I'm not spending this year's money. I'm spending next year's money. Like, it's not a joke, but that, that was the immature version of me back then. And when the recession hit, I had to spend the entire next year flying around, closing on branches and telling people one on one that I'm letting you go. I'll answer any questions you have. I'm so sorry. And oh, my God, talk about like the worst year of your life. I gained 30 pounds. Um, I was miserable. And when you're physically and mentally miserable, you're then a miserable partner to your to your significant other. So everything was like at an all time low. And then they came to me and they gave you my chance to say, hey, severance package or demotion of a demotion of a demotion of a demotion to go run a branch in Jersey. I said, I'm out of here. And that became the fresh start. That became the low point. That became the blank chalkboard, so to speak, where Lori and I got to say, all right, we are now stripped of our BS identities. We are now stripped of our excuses. We get to go from the ground up and figure out what we want to be and how we want to show up in life. What do we want this to look like? And it's not like it happened in a conversation. It's not like it happened in a month. It took a few years where Lori said, all right, I love fitness. I'm going to start going that, down that route. And I, I was just kind of treading water. I took a partnership in a, a mortgage bank that we grew at the time. And during those few years, it actually became the most transformative years, the years that we found self-development, the years that we reinvented our relationship and the rules of how we want to show up in life. And, you know, we'll get into some of those things. But if anybody's ever found themselves in that situation or know somebody in that situation, let me tell you, it feels like garbage in the moment, but you're going to look back on it. And if you do it right, if you leverage this clean slate that you have, it's going to be the best part of your life. Because mm, I think a lot of people will stay stuck in the ego, the the physical image that you had put up for yourself all those years. So what did that feel like being stripped of all that? So this is one of my favorite things to talk about. I actually have a saying that I made up for myself. Ego is your greatest overhead. Because think about it, ego is going to cost you more than anything else in this life. Ego will cost you, will cause you to speak up when you shouldn't. Ego will cause you to not speak up when you should. Ego will cause you, in my case, to not try something, even if it's a great opportunity, because I was a perfectionist. So if I didn't know I could knock it out of the park, then unfortunately, I wouldn't even try it. Um, ego will cause you to buy things you shouldn't for the wrong reasons. And it'll also cause you to not invest in opportunities when you should, because you're afraid of failures. Like ego for so many reasons is your greatest overhead forever. And that was one of the biggest things I had to get in check. My identity at the time was being a good provider based on how big of a salary I could make that year, how big of bonuses I could bring in that year, uh, what my house looked like, what cars I drove, and most importantly, what my title was, and was I 
getting, was I out promoting somebody else? Like how many people was I able to manage? And when I was stripped of all of that, that's a rough thing to go to, but such a blessing at the same time, because you get to choose then what your real value is. When you're stripped of your false values, you get to choose what your real value is. And it forced me to examine what do I have to offer this world? You know, I, I have so much to offer in terms of generosity and motivation and business guidance and love and all these other things that I really wasn't tapping into to any great length whatsoever back when I was flying through corporate America. And so, you know, when you bring up being stripped of your identity and of your ego, it's a tough thing to face, but it's telling you it's a blessing every single time. Mm -hmm. So you had to reframe your thinking, reframe your story around who Chris Harder was and, and what life meant to you. So obviously, I guess money was the driving force for you growing up, being so ego-focused in your young 20s. Yeah. How did you start to reframe the way you looked at money and what values you put so much uh, emphasis on? The best thing about losing everything at, when you're like 29, 30 years old is that it's an early enough age for you to feel the lesson, but for you to have plenty of time to reinvent how you treat your finances going forward, right? So like I used to joke, I had told you, I'm not spending this year's money, I'm spending next year's money. Now we take such a more conservative approach towards our finances, but we also make a conscious decision to thoroughly enjoy the fruits of our labor. And here's where people go wrong. People will either let the pendulum swing way too far one way or the other. So sometimes they let the pendulum swing way too far into, oh, I'm being abundant and I'm enjoying this money and I've earned it. And they're forgetting to you know, set anything aside. Or a lot of times what we see, people think they're doing the right thing by letting the pendulum swing all the other way. And they come from a place of scarcity. Save, save, save. Cut back, cut back, cut back. You know, what else can I eliminate and, and put into the savings account? And the problem with that is when your mentality is cut back, cut back, cut back, cut back, guess what you're going to attract? You're going to attract playing smaller over and over and over again until there's nothing left to cut back. And so now instead of focusing on growing your income, you've concentrated on cutting back and there's nothing else you can. It's like if you're taking clothes off at some point, you're naked. There's nothing else you can take off. So you want to play somewhere in the middle. You want to enjoy the fruits of your labor. You also want to make sure that you are saving for a rainy day and you want to make sure that you are striking that balance between loving the payoff of what you're doing and making sure that you have enough to sustain anything that's going to come your way in life. And that was one of my greatest lessons when we had to go through all that. Mm -hmm. Now, our audience is a lot of health and fitness professionals. Um, there is a lot of scarcity mindset, uh, low self-esteem, low worth. What would you say to someone who is working hard they're putting in the effort, but they're just struggling to get ahead. Yeah, I love this question. Hard work is not the answer. It's one of the components. And people, they just bang them their, their head against the wall over and over again, saying, I'm working so hard. You know, I took on another client. I can't possibly take on another client. I took on another, you know, whatever. Hard work is just one of the many components. Smart work is a far more important component than hard work. Now, I want to be super clear. You can't just work smart but not hard, and you can't just work hard but not smart. 
you need to have hard work. You need to have consistency. You need to work smart. You need to build your network because honestly, your net worth is always going to be, it's going to grow in accordance with your network. So um, you need to make sure that you're focusing on all those areas. I watched my wife grow up, so to speak, through the fitness world of entrepreneurship. It started with her working at this big box gym for $6 per half hour session. That's how much she'd collect, right? So 12 bucks an hour. And then saying, well, I'm not going to sit here and work for $12 an hour. My time's worth more than that. And so she opened up her own little studio in a ratty basement with exposed rafters and broken mirrors and swallowed her ego so that she could make more per hour. Then she took some of that money and we parlayed it into a nicer studio that we rolled up our sleeves, built out over the course of a month, and were able to you know, then have a place that she was actually proud to work in. But then we ran into a problem, and the problem was this. She was mentally and physically exhausted, I bet a lot of people are gonna identify with this, from working with so many people each day, and there was no way to work with more people, mentally or physically, so therefore there was no way to make any more money. So when you wake up and you're already charging the most you can charge, and you're already working the hardest you can work, what's next? Get smarter. So this became the beginning of our monthly program that still exists today. It's been around for eight or nine years now. And it was so juvenile and just crude when we started it. And, and I want people to know that because you've got to start somewhere. You don't start once it's perfect. Lori would make up this, this workout. Here's where it came from. So um, this was before everybody was an influencer, before anybody had online pro programs. Um, Lori said, if I just wrote a little PDF of workouts they could do, do at home, I would be able to get an extra 50, 60, 70, $80 a month out of each of my clients during the times that I can't physically be with them. And so that's where she started. All of her current clients, she said, hey, what if I wrote up a one size fits all PDF so that if you're only working out with me once or twice or three times a week, those other days you have something to do. And they loved it. And we started charging $89 a, a month uh, at the time. Well, one of her clients, the first month it came out, she says, her name's Heidi. She says, you know, Lori, would you mind if I cleaned this up a little bit? Because it was so basic. It was so bad. <laughs> That's the beauty That's of the beginning though, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, but this is an important part of the story. So Lori's like, oh my God, yes, I know it's nasty. Please clean it up for me and I'll let you on for free. So what did we do? We became resourceful. We found somebody else that was good at something we weren't. They added value to our product, and all we had to do was let them on for free. Well, Heidi became employee number one and still works with us full-time today. How cool is that? Years That's and years. so later, cool. Right? She's been through the whole journey. So then it grew into you know the monthly plan that you see today where it's several thousand women per month that pay 60 bucks a month to be on this really awesome program. And that doesn't happen overnight. That happens with trial and error and ups and downs. And just when you get, just when you crack the code, the whole world changes and you got to kind of reinvent it. So if you're banging your head against a wall out there saying, dang it, I thought I just got it figured out and now it's not working again. Welcome to the club. It's always going to be that way, but guess what? It's worth it because the alternative is not doing it. And the alternative is just trading your time for money and you are going to be burnt out and you're going to be miserable when you are just trading your time for money because you run out of time, you run out of energy, and then you run out of money. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned a really key word there, resourceful. 
And I feel so many people lack this. They use the, I don't know what to do, or I don't know how to do it excuse. How would you explain resourcefulness? The ability to figure it out, the grit to figure it out. And this is one of the gifts that I received from Lori as well. Remember, I was a perfectionist. So if I, if I knew I would knock it out of the park, I would try it. If I did not know I was going to knock it out of the park, I would not try it out of fear of looking silly. Lori was the opposite. She was just purely resourceful. She would jump off the cliff and build her parachute on the way down and just figure it out from fixing a cabinet in the kitchen to figuring out something in a, in a workout plan to everything else. So it was a gift that she has given me. To be resourceful means you get to write your own ticket. Think about this. To be resourceful means no matter what comes your way, you are going to take ownership of figuring out how to get over that hurdle. Lori and I call it getting bigger than the challenge. You're going to take ownership of getting over that hurdle because you are now empowered to know that you can find a way to figure it out. Guys, in this day and age, there is no excuse to not figure something out because it's on the internet for free. I'm not kidding. No matter what kind of business you're trying to start, marketing, fitness, internet funnels, you name it. All you have to do is Google it, roll up your sleeves, do some research, be willing to look silly, doing some trial and error. And if you do all of that, congratulations, you are being resourceful. Being resourceful also means having the ability to go out there and find the people and be able to get people to help you out when you are missing that component. So, you know, nobody's going to always have the entire package. It just doesn't exist. So if you are really good at A, B, and C, but you're missing the skill sets of X, Y, and Z, here's a tip. Stop trying to do X, Y, and Z yourself. Go find somebody who is good at that naturally and delegate, whether you're trading, whether you're bartering, whether you're paying, doesn't matter. Delegate the parts you're not good at so that you can speed up the building of your business. And this is where every time that we finally bite the bullet and decide to pay an expert to do something that we are not efficient at, that is when we have our business breakthroughs over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And even just looking at resourcefulness like that, it's such a freeing feeling because then, yeah, because then it's unlimited, right? It is. There's not a single thing that could come your way that you won't be able to figure out if you take the stance of I am resourceful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back again a little bit from when you were in finance and decided to go into entrepreneurship. What was that transition like for you? Ah, so I've always been an entrepreneur in my heart. I just ended up in corporate America partially because of my upbringing. I think it felt like a, a safe way to go. And, and there was a big trend of my friends going that way. But I've got so many failed businesses. Um, I once started this honor system snack box that I put in offices everywhere. And let me tell you, the honor system doesn't work very well. I, I learned over the course of a couple of years. I once started a, a cleaning company, a commercial cleaning company. That was mildly successful for a few years where we went out and got bar and restaurant contracts because they paid the most. But the problem is you have to work from like two in the morning until six in the morning and finding workers that want to do that, that are going to do a quality job. That's your big challenge, but made that mildly successful. And then eventually it didn't work out. I mean, I've had endeavor after endeavor after endeavor where I knew I was an entrepreneur inside. So the burning desire to have a business and to be successful was always there. But when I made that transition, 
it first looked like this. Um, I received my severance package from the International Bank. We were so far in debt from living beyond our means that we spent the entire multi-six-figure severance package just on getting back to zero. Okay, So now we're starting over again in a little apartment, back to zero, trying to figure out what we want to do next. Well, a friend of mine at the time that I used to work with, he had just barely started this little mortgage brokerage during the recession, by the way, not the, the smartest of, of endeavors. And he said, hey, come on over here. This actually goes back to what we were saying before. Come on over here. Be my business partner. You're good at what I'm not, and I'm good at what you're not. And we knew that because we worked together at the bank for so long. And I said, well, I don't have any other options. I'll be very honest in my heart. I didn't want to. But I was a college dropout during the recession with a banking background. What else am I going to do? So I said, yes. And I learned a few things during that three-year partnership of entrepreneurship. Number one, resourcefulness, like you just said, is key because Todd, my business partner, was one of the most roll-up-your-sleeves, figured-out men I had ever worked with my entire life, far more than me. And that rubbed off on me. Uh, number two, good old-fashioned hard work. That man outworked everybody in that company times 10. And guess what? That's what the business owner is supposed to do. You set the tone. Nobody on your team is going to work as hard as you. Maybe some will come close, but no one's going to work as hard as you. So if you're a 10, you're going to get a bunch of nines and downs. But if you're an 11, you're going to attract some 10s. You follow me? And that's exactly what he did. Um, I also learned the value of being really fiscally resourceful, not to keep going back to that word, um, with your resources. Because we came up with pay plans. We used office space. We, we got so creative to have as little overhead as possible during a time when everybody else was closing up shop that it allowed us to absorb all of the other talent out there as shop after shop after shop started to close. It allowed us to absorb all that talent and not have a lot of overhead, but receive the upside of their production. And three years into this thing, during the tail end of the recession, we took this tiny little mortgage brokerage that was, you know, a few people sitting in an office to 155 employees in seven states doing $330 million a year. And that was phenomenal. Now, here's what else I learned. I learned you need the right personality fit for a business partner. All too often, I see people rush into partnerships way too fast. Oh, you've got that. I've got this. Let's get married. And that's what a business partnership is. It's like a marriage, only worse, because it's totally centered around money and nothing else. You don't even get the, the friends with benefits part, right? At least you're not <laughs> supposed to. So yeah. here's the thing. When it's a partnership strictly bound around, are we making money? And that's how we determine our success. Then, boy, you better have the right partnership. And Todd wanted to run things very differently than I wanted to run things. And he was the majority partner and I was the minority partner. And so he always got the tiebreaker. And over the course of that three years, despite the massive success, we would fight and fight and have resent, you know, resentment after resentment. And it was just a toxic situation. And I finally just said, I'm out of here, man. Like, give me my shares. I'm out. This is not going to work. Now, that company still exists today and does well over $2 billion a year. Mm -hmm. But am I, do I regret pulling out of that? Not a bit. Because the best lesson is this. You cannot stay in a toxic situation just because you think it might have a bright financial future. It is not worth any 
dollar amount out there whatsoever. So be careful who you enter into partnerships with. And if you're in a toxic one, pull out sooner than later because it's not gonna change. Toxic is toxic is toxic. You're either a match or you're not in terms of your philosophy and your personality. And so if anyone's listening, they're considering a partnership or they're stuck in one or you know, even an agreement that they're stuck in, pull out of it. Even if you have to take less than your due, pull out of it and start fresh because that's what freed me up to then go do what we did with Lorraine myself. Mm-hmm. And it, it'll suck your soul dry if you're not in alignment for the actions that you're taking or the outcome that you want in a business. And oh. I, I know you and Lori give back so much and you're so generous with the charities. And I, was that your reason for disaligning? You know, what's funny. No one's ever asked me that. That was one of the many reasons, and I didn't even realize it at the time, but there were charitable things that I wanted to contribute to that um, at the time he didn't want to free up the funds for. And I'm like, hey, this is going to help someone and be good marketing. Like, let's go do this. And he didn't want to do it. That's funny. I've I've never been asked that before. So, yeah, that was one of the many things. Now, on that note, here's one thing I love about entrepreneurship. Like, when you get it right, the sky's the limit in terms of your income and your assets. And when you get it right, that means you have a bigger tool because that's all money is, is a tool to do whatever you want with. You have a bigger tool than if you weren't in entrepreneurship to then go create impact in any area of life that you think needs impact. And to me, that is a truly rich life. A rich life is not just monetarily rich, although that is absolutely an important component I can't stand when people are like, I don't need money, or I'm not doing it for the money, or, oh, I don't need nice things. You're lying to yourself, right? I've been happy broke, and I've been happy rich. Happy rich is way better, trust <laughs> me. So uh, monetarily rich is one component, but also rich in contribution, rich in experience, rich in impact. Those things are a must in order to have a truly rich life. Otherwise, it's going to feel empty, and your efforts are going to feel empty. And so we're even moving into a time where people are voting with their dollars and they are voting out loud with their dollars. So if you do not have your business attached to some kind of cause that you care about, you will not be successful with the upcoming generations. Mark my words. This is a line in the sand. If you have not attached your business to a cause that you care about, then the upcoming generations who vote with their dollar will not participate in your business. They will go somewhere else, no matter how good your product is. Hmm. Interesting. And your podcast for the love of money, PS, our listeners here, you guys got to go listen to this. What was the driving force behind that podcast? Was it what you were talking about there? Yeah. So I believe when good people make good money, they do great things. And there was a couple things going on that I just didn't want to tolerate anymore. Number one, this class warfare, like the rich are bad, the rich are greedy, uh, the rich are rich because they took something from me. I couldn't stand that. Number two, This huge batch of entrepreneurs, especially in the fitness world, especially in the coaching world, especially in the like the spiritual yoga world, this huge batch of entrepreneurs that work their tails off. They make so many of the right moves, but they're just not receiving the rewards that they should be because of their beliefs around money. They're limiting beliefs around money. And I don't care how hard you're working until you blow the cap off the ceiling that you have with your money mindset beliefs, you're not going to get the results that you think you're going to get, that you think are right around the corner. And so between empowering people to do better and to blow that cap off their ceiling 
And between being just sick and tired of this message of the rich are bad and, and the poor are somehow suffering because of the rich, I wanted to set the record straight by telling the stories of generosity in everybody's success story. So that as people listen to episode after episode after episode, they start to say, wait a minute, I'm a good person. And when I make good money, damn it, I'm going to do great things. So now I can unapologetically go out there and charge more for my service, or I can unapologetically go out there and make more money, or I can unapologetically go out there and take this risk because they start to realize that with more money, they can create more impact. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I love that you speak out loud about money. I love that we're in such a more conscious world now and money's not as taboo as it used to be. Did you have any blocks as your, you know, you went from like debt and those like really low moments to building like the empire that you and Lori have now, what were some of the things that you had to work through? Uh, In the beginning, remember it was shedding my identity of what I have defines my value. Right. So now I have nice things because I love nice things, not because I get any kind of identity or value out of them. So that's number one. Number two, um, treating money with respect. In other words, it's a beautiful tool. And just like if you're a carpenter, you got to treat your tools right, clean them off, make sure you're not just wasting them or leaving them at the work site and, and going and buying new ones. Like honor that money and treat it with respect, knowing that it's going to help you make more money. It's going to help you do great things. It's going to help you lead a good life. So dang it, take good care of it. Um, I think another big shift I had to make was blowing the cap off my own ceiling of what I was capable of making. So let me put this into to, uh, like an example for you. Back when I was in corporate America, the biggest I could think at the time was I wanted my boss's boss's job. That was it. That was I look back and I laugh, but that was where my ceiling was. I wanted my boss's boss's job. And then when I'd get promoted, I wanted that boss's boss's job. But that that was as far as I could possibly see. And so it was holding me back from thinking bigger. Then when Lori and I read the book, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind, and I learned that we have this thing called a financial thermostat. Wherever you set it, you get it. Just like the thermostat on, on your wall in your home. It was like a lightning bolt of realization that, dang it, why wouldn't I set that thing higher? Now, setting it higher means going out and gaining evidence that it can be set higher. And I started hanging out with people that were absolutely crushing it in life, like intentionally, if this wasn't an accident. I started seeking out people that could be mentors. I started spending time in areas that really inspired me that, wait a minute, people are doing a lot more than than what I'm doing and, and there's a lot more that's possible. And it quickly lifted the ceiling off of my money mindset, what I thought was possible, our financial thermostat. And when I was in um, banking, during the best years, right before the recession, we were making around 300 grand a year. And then we just kept bumping up against that ceiling for the last, you know, a little bit right before the, uh, the recession. And then we went to zero. Then I discovered, wait a minute, why have I always aspired to? I remember saying to Lori, like, babe, if we just made 350, everything would be set, right? Hey, living in the Midwest 10 years ago, that got you a really nice life. But when I read Secrets of Millionaire Mind and when I started hanging around these people that were making millions, it made me say, wait a minute, they are no different than I am. Why aren't I making millions? And we went from rebuilding to our first million dollar year. Actually, it's like 987 or something like that, but I call it a million bucks. Um, in one year's time. Isn't that wild? Just by shifting our expectations of ourselves. And I remember we did this exercise. We still do it today. 
I said, if we were going to make a million bucks, where would it come from? And I worked backwards. Well, we could make this much in a monthly plan. We could make this much at our gym. I could make this much at the mortgage bank. We could make this much from our network marketing company. And I worked backwards and I saw the path to a million. And then that is how we got there. Not the exact path, but the key was I saw the path and then rolled up my sleeves and made those things happen, right? So now we do that exercise every year, whether we went from a million to two, two to three, three to, and so on and so on and so on and so on. So all you got to do is call your shot and then go gather the evidence that it can be done and figure out what channels it's going to come from. And anybody can make any amount of money that they truly want to make. But you have to be willing to accept the fact that you have a ceiling and accept responsibility for going and surrounding yourself with evidence, meaning people, places, things that show you that it can be adjusted in a big, big way. Mm-hmm. And I think you're always adjusting that that mindset and that thermostat, right? I remember I was I was listening to uh, your podcast. I believe it was back in like August, and you had a two hundred fifty thousand dollar Amex bill. Bill, yeah. I, I love that episode. Will you let our listeners know like what happened there? Yeah, I, totally. I think most people would just like freak the fuck out. <laughs> it, it brought me right back to scarcity. Like you, you're ne- you're never fully rid of this stuff. You're always a work in progress, right? So, um, got it. You know, you get the email, it's your Amex bill and I opened it up and it was a quarter million dollars. Remember with Amex, you don't get to make payments. Like you have to pay that two weeks later, the whole amount. There's no exceptions. That's how Amex works. And so I'm like, Oh my God, it took my breath away. Where did this come from? And I got angry for a minute. I was like, how did we spend this much money in a month? And what did we spend it on? And it was just the perfect storm of events and investments and charity and everything else. Right. But I felt this anger come up and it immediately became this check-in point for me. Why are you experiencing anger? You, you got, you know, I, I paid the bill right away with absolutely zero problem whatsoever. Um, it's hardly a dent in the checking account that that bill came from. Why is there so much anger? And it was because immediately it felt like irresponsibility. It was reflecting back when I used to be irresponsible with money. And so it brought that up for me, mm. right? So those things are still deep down. And when they pop up, it's just a chance to check in with how far you've come, check in on your habits and, you know, do a little scoreboard if you want and say, no, I'm doing great. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I haven't fallen back into my old habits and this is a blessing to be able to pay this bill and then move on. So what felt like this moment of disappointment at first really became kind of a a cool little blip in my journey, so to speak. Yeah, because I think so many people think that once they have a certain amount of money, that all their problems and fears are gone. And it's, yeah, it. I think that's a really great story to highlight that. Here's, here's what it is. It's all just in scale. So now, in the past, uh, when we didn't take good care of our money, a mortgage payment would come up, and I'd be like, oh, this thing hurts this month. Now, you don't think about mortgage payments or anything like that. Now, investment opportunities come up and you have the same feeling, but it's just scaled differently. Now it's like, oh, I'd love to participate in that startup, but I'm already in four other startups and that would make it tight. Or, you know what I mean? Like, so now it's same feelings, different opportunities, so to speak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they stay. Yeah. Problems don't go away. You just get better at dealing with them. Totally. You catch them and reframe them faster. Yeah. You, this happened to me with judgment. I know judgment has nothing to do with money mindset, but there's another big growth journey in my life. And I used to be a really judgmental individual. And when you're a really judgmental individual, then that helps make you insecure because you think everyone else is judging you the way you judge them. 
And I'll save you the story, but I went to Costa Rica and I stripped of my judgment. It was the best gift I've ever gotten. And now when I say I was stripped of judgment, it's not that it doesn't pop up once in a while, but it is few and far between. And when it pops up in a split second, I recognize it and I reframe it and I go on my way. And that is that is all you're going for, guys. Like. You're, there's never going to be a moment where you never have a panic about money. There's never going to be a moment where you never again judge someone. There's never going to be a panic where, like, these moments, these feelings, they don't go away 100%. They go away 90%, but you become really good at catching and reframing and stopping the sabotage the other 10% of the time that they pop up. Mm-hmm. And that's what aiming for. Yeah. And, you know, you've mentioned a few times about your network being so important. And it, I don't believe it's just for the contacts, it's also for being in in the surroundings of different mindsets that are higher than you so that yeah. you can always be upscaling how you're viewing things it, that's so true like your network provides you opportunities you wouldn't have otherwise your network provides you a paradigm like perspective you wouldn't have otherwise your network provides you new contacts you wouldn't have otherwise your network provides you good old-fashioned support like lift you up on a bad day that you wouldn't have otherwise your network is absolutely going to determine your net worth. It's even going to determine how you spend your money once you start making a lot of it. Because if you hang around people that are blowing it on stupid stuff, you're going to blow it on stupid stuff. If you're hanging around people that are investing in other startups and and doing the right things with it, then you're going to do that with your money. Your network is literally going to determine your net worth time in and time again. So you got to be hyper intentional. Mm -hmm. Who you are seeking out to be a part of your network. And you also need to be hyper intentional about always up-leveling your network. And here's where people get stuck. They're like, well, I don't want to leave my friends and family behind. You're never leaving anyone behind. You're inviting new up-leveled people in, and that is raising your game. And when you raise your game, everybody else has the choice to come along. Now listen, not everybody comes along. Oftentimes, a lot of people don't come along but they always have the choice to come along. So you are never leaving people behind. Instead, you are setting the pace and lifting a few of them up while a, while a handful stay back. Yeah, 100%. You stay back on your own just because some people aren't comfortable or ready to have the kind of goals you have. Mm-hmm. Joe and I were actually down in California last week. We were with uh, Bedros and we were with Craig and doing some masterminds and Jay Ferugia. Yeah, we had an amazing time. Because up in Canada here, like we live in Toronto, there's not, masterminds don't really exist the way they do down there. And something about the California mindset, um, Joe and I made massive intention this year to get in bigger networks, get around people who are doing way better than us. And even just spending like three days with these people coming back, we're just like, woo! <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a, what's possible. Yeah, it's amazing. You're on a high, and your your vision is bigger than ever, and you actually can see the pieces how they fit into the vision because somebody at the yeah, at the mastermind told you like. I'm telling you, I love masterminds for that reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's interesting with growing a business with a partner, and I'd love to talk about, you know, your and uh, Lori's relationship uh, as a couple uh, from a personal perspective. um, I can definitely relate with Joe and I. Now, it's interesting because you guys, you know, sometimes people will meet on the growth path together, but, you know, you guys started, you know, with nine to fives and, and corporate and then really grew together. So what was that like because so many couples, they don't grow together and this causes a separation. So how was that journey for you guys? It's been bumpy. Like everyone's like, oh, you guys are relationship goals. And this, and I'm like, do you watch our stuff? Like, do you like, 
it's bumpy. There's ups and downs the entire time. So we have been together 16 years. We have been married 13 years. And the one reason why we have a great relationship today over all that time is that we have always had the agreement to try things on for size. So instead of just rejecting or saying, that's a dumb idea, we always were willing to try it on for size. And here's why that's important. We met in our early 20s. It's what you do in the Midwest, right? It's funny because I live out here in California and nobody gets married until like 40. They start families before. But um, in the Midwest, just like everyone else, we met in our early 20s. Lori was 21, I was 24. We got married when she was 24, I was 27. Now, here's the thing. You become such radically different human beings. You yourself do. From 21 to 25, 25 to 30, 30 to 35, 35 to I'm now 40. You change so much that you might as well give yourself a different name each time. Like that's how much you change. And because you change so much, you're going to have brand new ideas of how you want to show up in life. When you present those brand new ideas of what you want to try and how you want to show up in life to your partner, if they are not willing to try it on for size, that is where the separation begins. And so we've always been willing to try it on for size. There's sometimes, actually, there's a lot of times that I say, nope, that's not a fit. But at least I was willing to try it on for size. And there's so many times where she's like, oh, heck no, that's not a fit. But at least she was willing to try it on for size. And it feels good when your significant other is willing to try that idea on for size. It doesn't feel like rejection that way. And then there's no resentment when it's not for them. And that is why we, through all the different people that we have become over these past 16 years, that is why we've been able to end up in a place of growing together instead of growing apart. That's one reason. The other reason is this. We, let me rephrase it from we, everyone. Everybody knows when you're growing apart. It's this feeling inside, right? And the difference between, I think, the couples that stick together and the couples that end up not working out, especially in entrepreneurship, and we'll get more granular on that in a minute, is when that feeling starts to show up inside, it's whether you face it and decide to do something about it or not. And this goes for all parts of life, right? If you're gaining weight, do you face it and decide to do something about it? If your finances are bad, do you face it and decide it? Well, relationships are the same way. And so here's one really good example. There was a time just a few years ago, three and a half, coming up on four years ago, where Lori was on a freaking rocket ship. And I was just hanging out over here and good. Like our income was good. Our house was good. Our relationship was good. Our, my body was good. Like everything was just good. But Lori was like fast tracked, a freaking outstanding great. And I knew deep down that it wasn't going to be very long where she was going to wake up way up here. And I was going to wake up down here in Goodsville, and that gap was going to be too far apart for us to have a great relationship. So did I ignore the feeling or did I do something about it? I did something about it. I started seeking, like, I've got to up-level my game. I've got to go from good to great. And honestly, when you know you have greatness inside of you and you're just being good, you're just playing a good, that gap is as lonely and as large as the same gap from doing crappy to doing good. It's the same gap, maybe even worse. So I knew something had to be done. And you know how I knew something had to be done? I was sitting across from her at dinner and she was talking about these great big plans with these really cool people and this brand new opportunity that she's so excited to go try. And I was resentful. Mm. I was sitting across from her at dinner saying, why does it always have to be something new, something exciting, exciting people? Why isn't this good enough? And we all go through those phases. And that was when I was like, holy crap, dude, you are resenting her for doing all the right things. That's a bad sign. And so I started looking at, I'm like, how can I up level? How can I up level? How can I catch up? 
And I came across this guy on Instagram. He reads a book a day, and he actually attracted me. He's like, here's my Ferrari, here's my Lamborghini. Um, but what I really like in here is in his garage where all of his books. He talked about reading a book a day and all that stuff. He's actually a friend of mine now. And, but I didn't know him back then. And so I'm like, if this dude who is clearly really successful can read a book a day every single day, maybe that's what I'm missing. Because I had not read in my adult life a book by myself cover to, gov- to, cover, to cover up to that point. Isn't that a crazy thought? Mm. So reading was not a strength of mine or a habit. And this stewed in me for a few days. And finally, I said, I've got to do this. And I went to Lori and I said, babe, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I'm going to read 30 books in 30 days. Like, I need to do this for myself. And instead of her thinking I'm crazy, I remember seeing this relief on her face. She never said anything, but I remember seeing this relief on her face, like, finally, idiot. Like, good. (laughs) So um, I cleared my schedule for the next month. And I told the whole Facebook world that I was going to read a book a day for 30 days and I wanted them to hold me accountable and to hold me accountable that any money they donated, like I did like a drive, you know, when people do like an ultra marathon or whatever, they, they do a drive. Yeah, for yeah, yeah. I said, okay, any money that you guys donate during these 30 days, Lori and I will match, hold me accountable. And here's why I did that. I knew myself well enough to know that I'd read for maybe 10 days or 14 days straight and say, dude, that's better than you've ever done. Great job. You're done. You did it. But if I was taking other people's money for this 30-day drive, then I wouldn't be able – I would be out of integrity if I didn't follow through. So that's why I did it is to trap myself. Everyone's like, oh, you're such a good person. Eh, really, I did it to trap myself and make me, make me follow through. And it got the help. At the time, it was Unstoppable Foundation. So um, sure enough, I start reading these 30 books in 30 days, and it was rough. I was the person who – would read a page over and over and over again. And I couldn't tell you what was on that page. I was so ADD. I hated it. It was physically exhausting and mentally exhausting. But I powered through and I got better and better and better. And one night, Lori looked over and she's like, are you reading right now? I'm like, yeah, why? She's like, you're going like this. And like, if you guys could see me at home, I'm just flying through the lines. And she grabbed the book for me. She's like, what'd you just read? And I told her, and she's like, holy crap, I can't believe how fast you're reading now. And that was just a couple of weeks in. So you can quickly change your habits and your skill sets when you decide to really dive deep into something. The second cool thing that came out of that was this. People are always like, ooh, you know, what knowledge did you learn in the books or what books did you read? Listen, the books I read and the knowledge in the books, that was, that was the least of the benefits I got out of this thing. The biggest benefit was this, halfway through the 30 books, and, and I got to preface, the books had no common agenda other than they had to help me in some way. And they had to be less than 300 pages. That was it. That was my agenda. So halfway through these books, this common thread started to show up. And the common thread was giving. No matter what the book was trying to sell you, a business book, an autobiography, a relationships book, a spiritual book, didn't matter. No matter what the book was trying to sell me, giving was the secret to accomplishing that. And I remember I was in bed. I rolled over. I told her, I'm like, babe, you're not going to believe this. But so far through half these books – Giving is the secret to everything that they're trying to tell us that we want. And I watched for this trend in the remainder of the books. And sure enough, 30 out of 30 books, I can actually go through all 30 books now and tell you, 30 out of 30 books, that trend held through in a strong way. That was the only common thread through all books was giving is the secret to everything you want. And think about it. It's so true. Want a better relationship? Give more to it. Want a better body? Give more to it. Want a better bank account? Want a better business? Give more to it. Giving is the secret to everything that all of you out there listening are trying to accomplish in life. 
And that was a confirmation for me, somebody who already loved generosity. That was a confirmation for me that, yeah, I did have it right. And I just had to do more of it. And I had to be louder about it and prouder about it and teach it to other people, right? Give it to other people. And that was one of the most transformative 30 days of my entire life. And I, I caught right up to Lori, and, and that's been a game changer ever since. Matter of fact, we made an extra million dollars the following year because of me catching up. That's incredible. And I mean, I condone you on that because it takes a really self-aware person, especially as a male who came from a bigger ego before, because so many men can just say, well, you know, like, screw you, and they don't want to admit to their own faults. So, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, one of my, my proudest journeys is going from selfish to self-aware. Because it's when you're selfish, you're doing it because you're trying to accomplish things you want. The greatest irony in the world is if you want to accomplish everything you want, then become self-aware. And that is going to be the game changer for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'd love to know how you and Lori balance the energies of... Uh, personal versus I guess we could talk about like male and like female energy, um, a masculine energy. Uh, cause I know I definitely struggle with that. I'm more the masculine. I think Lori's like that too. Like the driver, the doer, the logic. Uh, how do you two balance that with everything? Interesting. So, um, so in some of the way, in some of the parts of our relationship, I'm way more the masculine. She's way more the feminine in other parts. She's more of the masculine, I'm more of the feminine in terms of energy. When it comes to balancing our business and our relationship, we had to do so much work on how we wanted to be communicated with from the other person based on how we show up in, in the masculine or feminine. So when I came home from corporate America and we decided to start working together, when I left that partnership, I was so used to having power from a title and I was so used to working in this boys club and I was so used to hierarchy, right? Your title gave you power. And when you said do something, they did it that I came home and I was like a bull in a China shop. We're going to do this this way. We're going to do this this way. This is silly. Why are we doing this? And I meant, well, I thought I was going to come in there, clean some things up. And I'm the type of person that wanted to take the shortest route to a message possible. Why not? It's efficient. That's how I'm built. She would literally shut down when I would talk to her like that. And for the first six months, we're like, oh my God, this is the worst thing we have ever done. We're screwed. And we sat down and we decided to not only tell each other how we wanted to be communicated with in each area of business and relationship, but also literally role play it. So when it came to marketing or finances or the budget, I would just go right to the point babe, we need to make this much. Here's how we're going to make it. Here's why we need it. And that would put her into a place of scarcity and panic and doing it for the wrong reasons. So I had to change my message to one that was a little bit softer in a way that she would receive it. Because listen, whether my way of giving the message was right or not is irrelevant. This is important. Whether my way of giving the message was right or not, it was irrelevant. What was relevant is giving her the message in a way that she was open to receiving it. Because if she's not going to receive it, it doesn't matter if my message is right. It's useless at that point. So we literally role played that out. Hey, babe, when we're talking about budget or when we're doing a launch, how do you want me to talk to you about this? And that was a game changer for us. Another thing that was a game changer for us was being hyper intentional about are we spending as much time on our relationship as we are our business? Here's where people go wrong. What comes first in most cases? Relationship. Yay, we got married. Yay, we're in love. Yay, maybe we, you know, we had a kid or two. All right, we got that settled. 
let's go build our future. And they, they start building this future, especially if they're doing it together. And they put the other thing on the back burner thinking, oh, good, that's over here. That's, that's set. It was, when I put it on the shelf, it was nice and shiny and new. No problem. And they turn their attention to their business. And they wake up and they're like, oh, my God, why is my relationship so crappy and my business so good? And it's because you shifted your focus. What you focus on, you're going to get. And you shifted your focus to your business only or your business more. So we have all these little hacks we've built in. Um, one of the most important ones is this mandatory daily dog walk at the end of our business day. Now, listen, I don't want people, listeners to shut down if they don't have a dog or whatever. Like find yourself in my story, okay? It's your job to always find yourself in my story. So we have a mandatory daily dog walk, rain or shine, pissed off or not, happy or not, does not matter, tired or not, does not matter. That is at least three miles and takes about an hour or more. And here's why. One, the dog needs it. Get a dog. It'll totally help you with this. But number two, it is that physical change of state. It is that physical change of location to pull you out of wherever your energy just came from. It is that great big one hour time out where quite honestly, sometimes on this walk for the first 45 out of 60 minutes, we're not even talking. And like 45 minutes in, you're like, so what, you're not going to say anything? And that's like my cue to maybe start talking. But we never come back from this one hour plus dog walk at the end of the night without holding hands and being a couple again. And that's the important. Guys, you need to come back to being a couple on a daily basis, not on a weekly basis or even worse, not once a month on date night on a monthly basis. You need to come back to being a couple on a daily basis or you get too far gone. And this is one of the things that everybody struggles with the most, including Lori and I. And once again, they're like, oh, you have the best relationship in the world. No, we just got a lot of things that kind of act as these great little hacks to keep it in the zone of good and improving, if that makes sense. Because running great big businesses and teams and employees and marketing budgets and all that stuff together is tough. And but here's another thing. It's very masculine, mm -hmm. right? So it, it, it's there's no romantic connection in discussing budgets. There just isn't, no matter how you do it. Take all your clothes off, discuss budgets naked. There's still no romantic. Not sexy. <laughs> yeah. And so you need to do these things on a regular basis, not monthly basis, not weekly basis, on a regular basis to bring yourselves back to being a couple again instead of a business partner. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's really, it's two different relationships that need to blend together. Yeah. Ultimately just, it is. And guess what? The more successful you get, the more different those relationships and individuals and challenges and hurdles and stories become. And that's not to discourage you from becoming successful because trust me, the other benefits that come along with it are way better for your relationship. Like we never have to fight about money yeah. budgets, maybe in terms of like huge marketing launches, but or buying other companies and stuff like that. But you never fight about bills or money or anything. That's a, it's a blessing to never have to fight about that. We never fight about anything that she ever wants to buy and wear or anything I ever wanted to buy and wear. We never have to fight about if I want a certain kind of car or anything. Like, like it, it removes all of those struggles from your relationship, but it adds a different type in. But I would rather have the struggle of as we become busier and more successful, how do we continue to have a ton of fun together as best friends then have the struggle of how do we pay our mortgage or how do we trade down in cars or heaven forbid when our, our families need financial help. Great. Who's going to help them because now we get to help them. So mm -hmm. 
it's a different type of problems, but they're, they're better ones to have. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not more money, more problems. It's more money, different problems. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'll even say it's more money, less problems. I'll go on record saying it's more money, less problems, but bigger decisions or bigger things to work through. Mm -hmm. Bigger conversations. Yep. Yeah. Amazing. That may, and I think, I don't think it's Danette's original, um, quote, but I always think of her when I hear it. She says, your success in life will be directly related to the number of tough conversations you're willing to have. And isn't that the truth? Mm -hmm. I think it's Tim Ferriss now that I think about it. Yeah, it's true. And especially that makes you grow as a person as well. Having the yeah. conversations with the people who are blocking you or holding you back or just that, that negative energy. Yep. Yeah. Amen. Totally does. I love it. I love it. Well, we're at the top of our hour. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I do have one more question that I end every episode with. After everything that you have been through and all the levels and ups and downs, what does fulfillment mean to you? Ooh, I love this question. Okay. Fulfillment means waking up and doing the things that make you feel good before you go to bed. So if it's spending time with a loved one, if it's creating impact with a person or a cause, if it is creating a job, if it is um, moving a project forward, if it is having a just a great euphoric experience, like it's all of those things and enough of those things so that by the time you, from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, you feel better. That, that's fulfillment day in and day out. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Thank you so much. Where can we find Chris Harder, creep you, find out more about you? I love being creeped, crept. What's the word there? All right. <laughs> uh, Instagram is the only platform I'm on these days. I mean, am I, do I have a Facebook account? Yeah, I think it's run by our team and, and bots. But Instagram is purely me and I love getting messages. So you can find me on Instagram at Chris W. Harder. I think that's how we connected, mm -hmm. actually, this interview mm -hmm. at Chris W. Harder. And my podcast is For the Love of Money, F-O-R, For the Love of Money dot com. Mm -hmm. Guys, go listen to that podcast. It's amazing. It will help you on so many different levels. Chris, thank you so much for your time, your generosity, your energy. It's absolutely incredible. Totally my pleasure. You're an awesome host and I will come back anytime. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Honestly, shows and podcasts like this are not possible without you. So I have so much gratitude for my listeners. You freaking rock. If you want to find me over on Instagram, I am sarah.fennel. Tag me in a post. Let me know what your favorite episode is. Hit me up with a DM. I will always write you back. Shows like this are not possible without ratings and reviews. So if you feel so moved, please write me an honest comment, an honest review, and let us know what you think of the show. 